Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is a bonus podcast that many readers and listeners have asked for regarding the probable cause affidavit that's detailing the investigation leading to the arrest of suspect Brian Kohlberger. I was not going to go into this case on my podcast because the coverage has just been so saturated, but so many people have emailed me, contacted me, asking for my opinion. So, here goes. This is a podcast looking at the probable cause affidavit of Brian Kohlberger. The suspect was arrested in Pennsylvania December 30th, 2022 for the mid-November 2022 murders of four University of Idaho students, Kaylee, Maddie, Zanna, and Ethan. Kohlberger faces four counts of first-degree murder and a charge of burglary. And let's remember, he is legally innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So Brian Kohlberger is legally innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. The probable cause affidavit was released this week and many pages have been redacted. Its release has created quite the fury and maelstrom with web sleuths, true crime shows, the media, and the public. So in this podcast, I'm going to address how the evidence was pulled from the trash, Idaho's stalking law, as that came into play quite often in this case, and how it would apply to the case, the eyewitness testimony the night of the murders, because that seems to be causing quite the hullabaloo, and the most important point to be garnered from this affidavit. And we're also going to look at the next step and why it is so important. So let's jump in. On page 18, the affidavit reads, On December 28, 2022, the Idaho State Lab reported that a DNA profile obtained from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the sheath, that's the knife sheath left at the crime scene, identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect. So let's look at this obtained from the trash statement. How is evidence legally obtained from trash? This is often called pulling trash, and there are several legal ways you can pull trash. Now, I'm explaining this in detail because some folks love to debate private property, people walking on their property, citizens' rights, right to privacy, etc. That's why I'm explaining this in detail. One, you can obtain a warrant to pull trash, obviously probable cause. Or two, the easiest way. Now, the trash has to be on what's called the curtilage of the property. This proves the occupants of the house place the trash to be picked up. At this time, legally, the occupants have released the property, the trash, which makes it, obviously, no longer their property. 
And it's best for you to note in your report when you pull trash that the date is trash day in that area and that local residents have also placed their trash bins and bags on their curtilage where the trash is located. Now, does this mean you have the right to go pull trash on your ex to see what they are doing? This is not why I am explaining this. And if you go pulling trash for the purpose of obtaining information on the occupants just because, and you're not a law enforcement officer or a private investigator, you just want to see what your ex is doing or who they're dating or etc., it is very possible that you are legally stalking. Speaking of which, Folks were talking about the suspect stalking the victims, and you've contacted me asking, was he stalking one or the others? Because it appeared, per the affidavit, the suspect's phone did a lot of pinging in the victim's neighborhood quite often. There are four types of stalking, and I'm going to discuss this in a future podcast, so be sure to follow this podcast because I don't want you to miss it. I believe that people should understand stalking because we misuse that word quite often. First, we need to discuss what stalking is legally because, again, too many people get these terms stalking, harassing, following. They get that confused. A lot of times you'll hear somebody, well, he's stalking me just because he has a crush on you or what have you. Okay, so how does harassment differ from stalking? Harassment is exactly how it sounds. Irritating and bothersome behavior sometimes to the point where a victim feels deeply uncomfortable. What separates it from stalking is the element of fear. Harassment victims are usually not afraid, just annoyed. Think about a case of sexual harassment. Coworker A might tell coworker B something like, you have a nice ass, or proposition them for sex, acting like it's a big joke. It's infuriating, or at least it should be, but it's not fearful. If coworker A starts showing up at coworker B's home or constantly texting, calling, sending unwanted gifts or the sexual harassment gets really scary, now it might be considered stalking. Let's look at the state of Idaho specifically. Idaho Code 18-7905 is stalking in the first degree. A person commits the crime of stalking in the first degree if it's enhanced by other crimes. For example, violation of a temporary restraining order, protection order, or no contact order or injunction. So if a person is charged with stalking and they have a temporary restraining order against them, now it's moved up to first degree. If it's a violation of a condition of probation or parole, or the victim is under the age of 16, or the defendant possessed a deadly weapon or instrument, or the defendant has previously convicted of a crime under the section. So, it moves up to stalking in the first degree. If the person is charged with stalking and they have violated a condition of probation parole. Now we drop down to stalking in the second degree, which, FYI, Idaho Code 18.7906. A person commits the crime of stalking in the second degree if the person knowingly and maliciously engages in a course of conduct that seriously alarms, annoys, or harasses the victim 
and is such as would cause a reasonable person substantial emotional distress or engages in a course of conduct such as would cause a reasonable person to be in fear of death or physical injury or in fear of the death or physical injury of a family or household member. Now, I'm not going to break it down. I'm not going to veer off too far from here. And I'm going to be discussing all this again in a future podcast. So follow the podcast. Again, you can look it up, Idaho Code 18-7906. It's very, very detailed, as you can see. You have to understand course of conduct. You have to look up reasonable person substantial emotional distress, even the definition of family or household member, and fear of the death of. It's all very detailed. It's not just somebody's following me around, so it's stalking, okay? It's not that simple. Let's talk about why sections of this affidavit were redacted. One section that was redacted was the description of where and how these young people's bodies were found the condition, and appearances. Redaction is the practice of removing or concealing portions of documents before publication. When I pull records for writing a book, I will sometimes get records that are redacted, blocks of black ink covering sensitive information I am not privileged to obtain. Records like affidavits are redacted for several reasons. In civil suits, documents turned over during discovery can be redacted. Protection of attorney-client privilege, legal work that are product for clients, sensitive information, for example, a agent's identity, a juvenile's identity. There is information irrelevant to the litigation that is redacted. Information not obtainable by what's called the Freedom of Information Act. In the Moscow, Indiana murder case, Information in this affidavit has been redacted for reasons of privacy, and this information is also going to be submitted into evidence. Also, it'll aid in selecting a fair and impartial jury. Now, there's the argument in Moscow, are they going to be able to find a fair and impartial jury? Who knows, that's going to be an argument for the future. However, by redacting this affidavit to be released to the public that is also going to play into that discussion. Finally, all of the social media rumblings and hullabaloo about how one witness in the house the early morning of the murders actually saw the suspect, but why didn't they call the police department? All right, let's look at page four of this affidavit, four to five. D.M. stated she opened her door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking toward her. D.M. described the figure as 5 foot 10 inches or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past D.M. as she stood in a, quote, frozen shock face, end quote. The male walked toward the back sliding glass door. DM locked herself in her room after seeing the male. DM did not state she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the scene. Okay, 
So many folks are up in arms because originally law enforcement told the public that the other roommates who lived in the home where the murders occurred were asleep during the murders or they did not hear anything. And everybody had to debate, why didn't they hear anything? Where were they asleep? Were they in the basement? Were they not in the basement? Law enforcement was probably protecting these witnesses by releasing that initial story of everyone was asleep, no one saw anything, uh, nobody heard anything. Because think about this. That killer was still out there. Killer, killers, whoever they were. And if they heard the news and law enforcement said, well, here's what the roommates saw, then the perpetrators realize they left witnesses. And if they watch the news enough and they read enough, they're going to get the names of who they left behind. Law enforcement was protecting these witnesses. If they were your children, would you want them protected? So that's probably why they gave the initial story of no one saw anything. Consider we are looking at this whole crime in hindsight. It's like what they call Monday morning quarterbacking. Everybody gets together after the football game and says, well, what they should have done, what they should have said, understand that this witness only saw a small, tiny portion of this crime. At the time, they had no idea that a crime had even committed. And who wakes up in the middle of the night for four, five, ten seconds and says, a crime has been committed? Don't say me. We're looking at this thing in hindsight. Did the killer see the witness? Why didn't the killer respond? Okay, this was a house where people went in and out, in and out, partied. It was the weekend. The human eye cannot see in total darkness. To go from a bright light, say, reading under a lamp, to walking into a dark hallway, it's called dark adaption. Dark adaption takes between 20 and 30 minutes to reach its maximum depending on the intensity of light. Bright sunlight, a nightlight in a bedroom at night, and if someone has weak eyesight, the muscles in the eyes are weaker, so it's going to take longer. Also consider, the killer just murdered four people with a bladed instrument, and it was a vicious crime. This took much energy and passion. The killer could have been experiencing an adrenaline rush, or what is called an adrenaline dump. This hormone, adrenaline, increases heartbeat, blood flow to the brain, muscles. It stimulates the body to make sugar for fuel for the body. The senses are heightened, ears open wider, the pupils dilate. But in this instance, the killer was focused on the job at hand. So all that adrenaline is focused on murder which means the adrenaline or adrenaline dump is focused on murder. Criminals are not the brightest bulbs in the box, regardless of what movies have us believe. They have a plan. I will enter this door. I will go to this room. I will do A, B, C. They rarely have a backup plan. It's entirely possible the perpetrator was so focused on his plan that he did not see the roommate. Add that, the adrenaline rush, the lighting, dark adaption, it all makes sense. Now, let's just use common sense, people. Common sense. 
We cannot judge someone's action by our own. We can't say, well, if I would have been there. The roommate looked outside and saw him leaving, from what we understand. There was no way this roommate could have known what this person did. Nobody thinks, you know what, I just saw a guy go down the hall in a house where lots of people go in and out at all hours of the day and night. I wonder if he killed somebody. All right, what about the mask? The way it is described in this affidavit, it sounds a lot like a COVID mask covering the nose and the mouth. And people are still wearing COVID masks. I went somewhere the other day and I noticed that probably a fourth of the public were wearing COVID masks and they were all different colors because people are still personalizing their little COVID masks. And I also noticed in some places they are asking people to wear their COVID masks. The roommate then locked her door. That is not suspicious behavior. This is a young woman who lives in a large house with other people, not her family. I'll give you an example. At one time in undergraduate school, I had a roommate for about one, two months. That was enough. We shared a dorm room that was shaped like a Z shape, which allowed each person some privacy, I guess was the word. I woke up a few times in the early morning with a stranger standing over me. Sometimes it was a guy, a young guy, sometimes not, just standing over my bed looking at me. And they end up being a friend of my new roommate. And the roommate later shares with me that she had, prior to college, been released from a psych ward for what she describes as her sexual deviancy. That's all she said about why she had been released from a psych ward. I never ask for any kind of details. And she also shares with me that all her friends were people she had met at the hospital also recently released. I wished I could have had a door to lock. So moral of the story is, there's no strange reason why the roommate locks her door when she's living there. It's just a precaution. It's just a safety thing. It's just a thing to do when you're living in a large house with lots of people. The most important point to be gleaned from this affidavit is the detailed investigation that went into this case from day one. I always had a feeling that law enforcement had evidence that was being analyzed from day one, and they knew they were going to get their man. It was just a matter of putting all the evidence together. Now, an investigation is like a puzzle, and these agencies were putting their puzzle together while the media was barking out all these stupid countdowns. You know, one week, and nothing has happened. Two weeks, and no suspect. One month, and no arrest. It was almost like a New Year's countdown. It's pretty annoying. And some of the public, you know, people were bitching about, why has it taken so long? They were gathering evidence. Again, it's like building a puzzle. You put all the pieces out on the table. You put the blues over here, the greens over there, the end pieces here, and you're putting it together. Think about this. If it was your murdered child, you want the investigators to ensure they have a rock-solid case before an arrest and I strongly believe everyone needs to stop making a fiasco 
out of this suspect and concentrate on the surviving victims. Quit making him a rock star and worry about the surviving victims. What can we do for them? Zana's family has started a memorial endowment in Zana's name to honor her memory and keep her legacy alive. The family of victim Zana Kernodal has created the Zana Kernodal Scholarship Endowment in a permanent endowment created in partnership with the University of Idaho Foundation. It's going to support and fund scholarships year after year for University of Idaho students. To donate, you can contact me at an email address, truecrimebook at yahoo.com, and I will get you the information rather than list it all here. That's important. That's going to keep Zana's name alive. That's going to keep a positive memory alive because these people were only victims for a short time in their life. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I hope it shed some light on this affidavit. I hope it shed some light on this case. Take care of each other and be safe out there. Hey listeners, my name is Judith A. Yates. Like so many of you out there, I have suffered from depression and I have been suicidal. I've also been the victim of discrimination, but there is help out there. You can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. That is the crisis text line. You can connect with a crisis counselor, and it's free 24-7 support right there at your fingertips. Here's how it works. You text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 from anywhere in the United States, anytime, and a live trained crisis counselor receives the text and will respond. It's a secure online platform. Crisis counselor can help you with gun violence, coronavirus, anxiety, eating disorder, depression, suicide. Give them a text at 741-741. They also say habla espanol and they are GLBT friendly. So don't sit alone and don't do anything dangerous to yourself or others. Please, there is hope out there and there is help. Be safe out there. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.